Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we return to the Cold War and discuss yet another controversial political figure, Fidel Castro, the revolutionary firebrand who came to power in Cuba in the late 1950s. To some, he's a tyrant, and to others, he's the hero who deposed a corrupt regime and defied America for decades. We're joined by a very special guest for this episode, the historian and journalist Tony Perrottet. Tony's the author of several non-fiction books, including Cuba Libre, Che, Fidel, and the improbable revolution that changed world history. Tony's also a contributing editor at the Smithsonian Magazine in Washington, and has written for media outlets including the New York Times. It's January the 8th, 1959, and a procession is moving through the streets of Havana. Atop a tank sits a 32-year-old man in military garb with an olive green cap. He's waving happily to the crowds. It's an historic moment, a victory against all the odds and the beginning of a nearly 50-year rule. Only a few days ago, his ally and friend, the Argentine revolutionary Che Guevara, arrived in the city. Together, after two years of guerrilla warfare, Castro, Guevara and their companions have liberated Cuba. The Cuban people sing, cheer and celebrate in the streets, as the rest of the world looks on in astonishment. Fidel Alejandro Castro Ruz is born in the village of Biran in eastern Cuba in 1926. He's one of seven children. He has an unusual background for a revolutionary. He's not disadvantaged, at least not financially. His father, Angel, is a wealthy sugar farmer, a staunch Catholic and a veteran of the Spanish-American War. His mother, Lina, was originally one of Angel's domestic servants. They eventually marry, but not until Fidel is in his teens. The young Fidel grows up intelligent, talented, and rebellious. He loves hunting and fishing, and he and his siblings tend to run wild. He gets into trouble at school as a teenager. His father decides not to send him back, but changes his mind when Fidel threatens to burn down the family house. Tony Perrottet introduces us to the young Fidel and his family. His, uh, his mom was, had basically moved in as, a, as the maid uh, into the, the farm and uh, ousted Angel, his father's first wife. So Fidel was, he wasn't really spoken about that much, but he was illegitimate. He wasn't really uh, recognised till he was about 16 years old. Uh, so he had a bit of his, a chip on his shoulder about that. So his dad was very stern, very sort of um, strong-willed Spaniard, and his mum very indulgent, very um, sort of shy and retiring. Uh, and had, you know, he was the third of seven kids. So um, 
so he had a very sort of strange upbringing, and then he uh, uh, he became very rebellious. He um, and it was known uh, amongst his schoolmates as El Loco, the, the crazy one. He would do things like uh, bet his schoolmates that he wouldn't drive a bicycle down a hill straight into a brick wall. And they would sort of go, oh, yeah, okay, we'll give you, you know, whatever it was, a couple of pesos. And then he would do it. He would drive the bicycle down and slam into the brick wall and have to go to hospital for three days, knocked himself out. So he had this sort of extreme, um, you know, sense of willpower uh, and a sense of himself that uh, would stand him in good stead uh, in politics. The Cuba of Fidel's childhood is a complex place. Culturally, it's part of Latin America, but geographically it belongs to the Caribbean, along with former French colonies like Haiti and Dominica, and former British colonies like Jamaica. Spanish settlers arrive on the island of Cuba in the 15th century and establish an agricultural system forcing indigenous Cubans, the Taino and Guanahatabe people, to work on the land. For around three centuries, Cuba's economy is more or less self-sufficient, but in 1791, there's a bloody rebellion on the French-controlled sugar-growing island of Haiti, where slaves vastly outnumber landowners. Due to Europe's insatiable demand for sugar, Haiti was the wealthiest island in the Caribbean, and since it's no longer possible to farm sugarcane there, Cuba fills the void. Sugar now becomes Cuba's principal export and most important crop. Growing and harvesting it is labour-intensive, so more and more African slaves are brought into the country. In the late 19th century, after decades of unrest due to poor working conditions on the plantations and high taxes, the Cubans rebel against Spain. The rebellion is led by landowners, but many slaves and former slaves join them. America is sympathetic to the cause, and a huge American warship arrives in Havana, ostensibly to protect America's economic interests in the area. While in the harbour, the ship mysteriously explodes or is blown up, and the US, blaming Spain, enters the fray. Spain loses the war and one of its last colonies. But Cuba still isn't really free. Our guest, Tony Perrette, discusses the Cuba that Fidel and his family saw in the 1920s and 30s. When Castro was born, it was, uh, Cuba was a mess. Uh, basically, the Spanish had been running it uh, for centuries. They held on to it long after the rest of uh, Latin America had, uh, had had revolutions and departed. Uh, when the Americans uh, started in the um, Spanish Civil War, they, uh, they in quotes, liberated it. They um, uh, rescued it from the, the, the evil Spanish. Uh, but in so doing, they sort of gave Cuba this half-life. They, uh, they, it was only semi-independent. So the Americans remained uh, running the show. This sort of ruling class, Cuban ruling class, was set up. Uh, but the Americans, they were running the railroads. They owned the, you know, the sugar plantations. They owned the, you know, the best land. Uh, they were running um, you know, the electricity companies, everything. So it sort of um, turned into a semi-American uh, colony. So when Fidel was born, 
uh, it was he grew up into this world where uh, there was it was extremely um, there was a lot of tension. There was a lot there was a lot of rebellion against this sort of this this series of increasingly corrupt and uh, uh, annoying regimes. In the 1940s, Cuba has a series of lawfully elected governments and an economic boom, but there's still a lot of tension and discontent simmering in the background. The young Fidel heads west after he leaves school, travelling to Cuba's capital city, Havana, to study. As he trains to become a lawyer, he also becomes exposed to the world of politics and radical ideologies, adding fuel to an already fiery personality. He often said that he was political illiterate before he went to Havana. He was very sort of kind of innocent. Um, I mean, he had done wacky stuff, and we don't know whether it's part of the mythology, but when he was like 13, he organised the workers at his dad's sugar property to strike for better conditions, which didn't endear him too much to his dad. But uh, uh, that's the story. That's the mythology. Uh, but really, when he sort of, his dad gave him a, a Chevrolet and he drove all the way to Havana to go to hospital, I mean, sorry, he drove all the way to Havana to go to the university, he, he didn't really know much about politics. And he, it was a, a bit of a crash course because the, the university was very, um, very political and uh, he was drawn into this sort of fiery left-wing world because uh, at that stage, Cuba had a new uh, dictator, Fulvencio Batista, who had sort of been around um, some some years earlier, but had returned, was going to try to run for uh, election when it looked like he was going to lose. He seized uh, power and he'd set up this extremely corrupt, extremely decadent sort of uh, military dictatorship. And so the students were on the front line rebelling against that. General Fulgencio Batista is disliked by the vast majority of Cubans. Among other things, he turns a blind eye to the activities of the American mafia, who use Cuba for rum running, money laundering and drug trafficking. They gain a foothold in the country via the nightclub and casino industries. Fulgencio Batista, he actually was a, a real self-made man. He was came from a he was the sort of character who should have been a revolutionary. He came from a very poor background, entered the military and sort of worked his way up. Uh, yeah, a very poor background, but he became drawn into more uh, right-wing uh, politics. And um, so he, he'd started out being very, fairly progressive in his first uh, rule, and then he went and uh, retired uh, for a while to the United States. Then he came back, and by then he was sort of like, you know, fat and corrupt and, you know, was really just out there to make money. And so he basically milked Cuba. He sort of invited all the... Um, uh, mafiosi from the United States to come and run the uh, the casinos. So Maya Lansky came down, and uh, you know, and and he set up this basically this Cuba is it's like this corporation where the bribes would be paid to the Americans, and then um, the military was there to enforce uh, and to keep the labor in, in place. And they were just like, yeah, the wealthy were just like uh, milking everything in the country for everything they could get. Uh, and the people were becoming more and more, you know, irate and upset. And the, the police, the military police were going around kidnapping and murdering and torturing um, dissidents and journalists. Censorship was um, out of control. And so it was actually, it became this increasingly untenable situation. And Fidel and um, a lot of young Cubans were really willing to do almost anything to get rid of this guy. 
resentment against him, you know, and um, yeah, from the the far left wing and the communists, and it was a very splintered sort of political scene. Uh, and but mostly it was a you know there was this sort of nationalistic feeling that um, you know who's this guy? He was going. He's particularly um, you know killing off uh, young men who are in politics and just this, the, the sort of the the shamelessness of the regime. It was by um, even by Latin American standards in the of the time was was outrageous. And so people, the middle class in particular, um, just it was just a, an embarrassment to to have this guy running the country. So Fidel was part of this. Um, you know, he himself was a bit left of center, as far as we can, you know, we can tell. You know, you never know exactly what was going on in his head. But uh, he would join these radical groups, but not not the communists, not the uh, extreme left. It was more sort of a, a nationalist rebellion. Welcome to murder and mimosas. I'm Shannon, and I'm Danica. Together, as a mother and daughter duo, we host Murder Mimosas, a true crime podcast with an episode released every Saturday at 10 a.m., so you can listen to it during prime brunch time. While we don't require a mimosa, we do highly recommend one. All of our episodes are cases that we found really interesting or just really stuck with us because we hope they'll do the same for you. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Fidel and his friends move from conversation into action in July 1953 with a surprise attack on the Moncada army barracks in the city of Santiago. The move is a dismal failure. Many of the participants die and Fidel winds up in prison. But ironically, it also makes his name as a revolutionary. Tony talks about the attack on the barracks and its significance. Well, he um, and uh, his friends decided they had to do something, and they, he felt that if some sort of attack was made, that Cubans would rise up and you know throw Batista out. So he came up with this plan over in Santiago, uh, of the, the you know the sort of the capital city of the uh, of the east, where he was from. There was a, uh, a military uh, outpost in the in the city called the Moncada, and he decided to to attack that. And he came up with this sort of quite bizarre plan where him and uh, like 160 um, committed uh, young men and, and a couple of women who were involved as well, they all got dressed up in, you know, they made their own, you know, uh, army outfits and they all came in like a convoy of cars, like eight of them squeezed into each, each car. And uh, they decided they were going to pretend that they were coming in and they were going to you know, as, as part of some military um, operation, uh, going in in Carnival when everyone was really hung over. And they were going to go in and they were going to surprise everyone and take over the place, you know, even though they were outnumbered 10 to 1. It was this kind of loopy plan. And it went wrong from the start. It really, uh, he, you know, they arrived, they all got lost in the streets, they didn't know where they were going. When they, when they did arrive, one, a couple of cars went in and Fidel's car accidentally ran into some soldiers and then he, he panicked and... Um, they started shooting and suddenly everyone was aware of what was happening. So uh, it, it turned into this firefight outnumbered 10 to 1. Most of them, many of them got captured, a lot of them fled. And the ones that got captured, most of them were um, tortured to death, basically. They were um, beaten and uh, executed. You know, and then the others were hunted down in the countryside in Fidel uh, and a couple of friends were found hiding out in a, uh, in a hut in the, uh, in the mountains. Luckily, he wasn't shot at that stage. They took him, the, 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 the officers that found him were fairly honourable sort of characters. And they, they, he, so him and, you know, a, a bunch of others were um, 
uh, were imprisoned, and then they were uh, there was a sort of a, a, a trial, and they were sent um, to a uh, island, a prisoner island, altogether. So funnily enough, they all sat around in this island plotting how to uh, how to take over uh, the regime in a in a much more coherent way, and they became heroes in a sense, uh, in a way that they and had a much higher profile in prison than they ever would have if they'd been um, out out in out in the wild, as it were. The the attack occurred on the twenty third of July, and so because um, uh, there were so many martyred uh, young men, uh, it sort of had a sort of a slightly religious echo to it. So it became the twenty sixth of uh, July movement. Yeah, and it, every year in Cuba, that date is still celebrated as the start of the real start of the revolution. There was this lull when they're all in prison, but even then, um, Fidel's defense at his um, at his trial became famous, and he it was published under the under the title "History Will Absolve Me," which was his resounding last line. And so uh, uh, it was very um, uh, the Moncada uh, became this sort of uh, you know, extraordinary rallying point. And, and indeed, you know, these guys really were willing to sacrifice themselves. So Cubans have a sort of a fondness for uh, disastrous rebellions. Uh, they have, you know, they had for, for decades because the, they've been trying to rebel against the Spanish and it was always going wrong. You know, their, their most famous independence leader, Jose Marti, was killed in a sort of a, an ambush, you know, days after he arrived. Everyone, everything, this idea of the martyred hero um, was a very strong one. After a year, Fidel is released from prison along with his brother Raul, who fought alongside him. There's international as well as domestic pressure on Batista to grant amnesty to the survivors. But when they get out, they realise that Cuba is no longer safe. Fidel and Raul leave the country and head to Mexico, which in the 1950s is a turbulent place, attracting political dissidents, artists and outlaws from all over the Americas. But Fidel quickly realised that uh, his life was in extreme danger, and in fact, um, he was more likely to be uh, assassinated, you know, um, by you know a supposed accident uh, at, while he was in Havana than he would be in um, in prison. So he decided to flee to Mexico City, which in the fifties was really um, uh, the sort of the Casablanca of Latin America, as well where all the um, military, uh, you know, es- escapees from military rule and all the revolutionaries would hide out, as well as uh, American beats and uh, communists, you know, fleeing McCarthy years and whatever. So it was kind of this volatile place. And uh, one of those who fled there was um, a-, a young Argentine uh, doctor who had been in Guatemala when there was a CIA-backed coup and he had to flee. So he ended up in Mexico City and, and um, you know, Che Guevara. Was in a che is sort of um, is a nickname. It's, a, you know, it's sort of like friend or mate in Argentina. And uh, Israel name's Ernesto. But uh, uh, Che met uh, Fidel at a dinner party. They went to a dinner party there and it was this... Uh, uh, he went with, and you know, Che went with his wife Hilda, and uh, they were all hanging out there. And Fidel just started talking uh, with such passion, and as was his habit, he would just sort of go on these like three-hour harangues, these political harangues. And uh, and Che was so drawn to this that he told his wife that he has to sign up for this um, slightly demented uh, idea that uh, that Fidel had that he should, you know, somehow start a revolution and get returned to Cuba in secret and start a revolution in the mountains. But Che was just the, you know, thought he should go along as the doctor. 
With Che Guevara now on board, Fidel and Raul, worried that the authorities might be catching up with them, start plotting their revolution. Using a Mexican arms dealer as an intermediary, they purchase a boat from a retired American dentist. It's an old pleasure yacht called the Grandma. They patch it up, manage to fit 82 men onto the boat and set sail for Cuba. It's not long before a storm sets in and while they eventually get there, it's a rough voyage. Tony talks about the voyage and the next two years, much of which were spent in the Sierra Maestra mountains. Ache had forgotten the seasickness tablets. And yeah, although he was one of the few that didn't get seasick. But um, so it's kind of this disastrous trip. The, the seas calmed down, but it was, they were so over, over, overweight, you know, with, uh, with all these guys. You know, it just took them like, it took them a week instead of four days and they were really running out of petrol. And so they, they were going to land at a place where they had, there was a dock, uh, but they wouldn't, knew they weren't going to make it. So they decided to go straight into the coast. It's south of, in the far, far east there. And they basically ran into some mangroves, mangrove swamps, and they, uh, and they ran out of petrol. Che said it wasn't an invasion; it was a shipwreck. That's how they all climbed over and waded through the um, through the mangroves, but they lost their shoes. They're like all torn up. They're like uh, you know half their equipment was lost, and so it was this slightly disastrous start, which became even worse when they um, a couple of days later they were uh, they were you know since they they had lost the element of surprise, the army basically uh, pounced upon them and um, wiped most of them out. There was like maybe about twenty of them finally made it up to the um, to the mountains to the rendezvous. Uh, but those of those twenty, they all became major characters in the um, in the revolution. Miraculously, Che was one of them. Raúl Castro, um, Fidel's younger brother. But even though there was this disastrous start, Fidel had this incredible sense of confidence, and that was a one of the things that really um, marked him as a leader. He was absolutely convinced that he was somehow with twenty men, you know, going to overthrow. Uh, this military dictatorship where there's like you know a hundred thousand men under arms and an air force and a navy and he's convinced that he can do it in fact at one stage there was only three of them stuck in a sugar grove and um they, one of the other guys remembered you know there, there was an army you know the soldiers going left right and center and they were hiding there and uh, they remembered that fidel was sort of sitting there rocking back and forth going we're going to win the revolution will succeed we're going to win and they thought Fidel's lost it, you know, he's gone crazy. It's absolutely, this is an absolute disaster. Nevertheless, they did survive. They all went up into the mountains. And even though they were hunted for a long time, they slowly won the support and, uh, the, of, of, the, of the local people. And they also captured the imagination of the Cubans when word got out that Fidel, contrary to what Batista had said, he'd said that everyone, they were all dead. Fidel was, you know, was gone but was never able to produce the body. And it turned out that uh, Batista was lying. And this was another, you know, this was the start of the revolution, this guerrilla war that, you know, basically, you know, it went through many ups and downs for two years and uh, had a slightly operatic uh, narrative arc, which I explained in my book, you know, Cuba Libre is really about this, um, this wacky uh, revolution where a bunch of basically college edu- educated inexperienced guys get dumped in the mountains and it's like uh, as if a bunch of Princeton PhD students were sent up into the Adirondacks and told to start a revolution they had to figure it all out by themselves they had to sort of 
learning how to shoot guns, how to uh, make bombs, how to where to hide, what to um, you know how to uh, get around in the um, in the jungle. So that's the start. And then more and more people, men, you know, young men and women, uh, Cuban women would would filter up to the mountains and start to join uh, this group, and it became larger and larger. And for the first year, it was actually kind of a negligible uh, bunch. You know, the, you know, no one took them seriously. But increasingly, um, the fact that Batista and his men couldn't find them and couldn't beat them, and they would strike different places and they would beat the army, and the and the and the soldiers had no real interest in fighting, so uh, they didn't have any reason to try and get rid of these guerrillas and they would have more and more success and it captured the um the imaginations and the um and the support of the of uh the middle class all across across cuba and so it increasingly you know became became powerful you know then you know after what happened was um you know, Batista's regime was so was so unpopular. There were there's a lot of revolutionaries acting in Havana and other cities. Transport began to fall to bits, uh, and Fidel's force became larger and stronger, and was getting supply military supplies sent in from uh, donors in exile Cubans, and you know it, it became a sort of a serious military threat. Even so, Fidel thought it was going to be he was going to keep going, you know, up in the mountains for years. But Batista started to increasingly worry that he was going to, um, you know, be captured or there'd be a coup. And so he, on um, New Year's Eve, uh, in the, the end of um, 1958, in New Year's Day 59, he decided to just like get out of Cuba. He decided to abandon ship, much to the surprise of everybody. And uh, so he got a, he had his, you know, three DC four planes at uh, the airport in Havana at his military airport. And he just went to a New Year's Eve party and told everyone that he was getting out of uh, Cuba and uh, taking just a few friends and relatives and family. Uh, so it's, it's dramatised in the, in the movie Godfather 2 where everyone starts to, to panic and they realise they've all got to somehow get out of Cuba because once he was gone, there was no real you know, logic about what, what was going to happen, happen next. And Fidel himself was totally surprised. He just heard it on the radio. Uh, in uh, over in uh, over in the east, the Batista had fled, and then there was these very delicate number of days before he was able to finally take control. The Cuban people are jubilant that Batista has finally left, but the revolutionaries are still unsure of how much support they have. So, rather than heading straight into Havana, Fidel and the other leaders travel from town to town in a kind of victory parade gathering supporters as they go. Tony discusses the international and domestic reaction to the revolutionaries. And so what Fidel did, instead of flying straight to Havana, he took a, um, uh, he decided to do a caravan of victory, basically proceeding uh, in, in, in captured tanks and in uh, on lorries all the way from Santiago, the 500 miles along the main highway, through all the cities to arrive in um, Havana in triumph. And he was gathering more and more support as he went. And everyone, the whole world loved this. You know, um, the Americans in particular thought it was very, um, very romantic. It reminded them of, you know, the, the, the American Revolution, the sort of the, the committed patriots who were able to defeat the British against all odds. And here was this guy, you know, apparently 
you know, very democratic, this, this young, uh, handsome, you know, sexy bunch of guys and these, you know, these women in uniform, all committed and uh, attractive and charming, this youth rebellion. Uh, and, and then by the time they arrive in Havana, there's a you know, million people gathering and sort of like, you know, news reporters there from all over the world, uh, you know, and they were comparing it to the arrival of the Americans in uh, Paris in 1944, the liberation, uh, you know, flying flowers and, you know, uh, just this sort of joy. And, and, and uh, Havana became a sort of a party scene. For a, for a week, you know, everyone just like was celebrating and uh, and the military just sort of kept quiet. You know, no one was out in the streets. The police just stayed low. And Che was in the advance guard and he just went straight into uh, the main fortress there, Cabana, and um, the soldiers just surrendered. You know, like he went with like maybe 100 men and a force of 8,000 surrendered. They just didn't want to fight. The interesting thing, one of the interesting things is that it wasn't even clear that Fidel would be, be in charge at that stage. He was the, you know, the uh, one of many leaders then. But uh, increasingly over the next few weeks, he was able to, he was so popular uh, and the others, you know, he, he was able to assert his control. Not long after Fidel arrives in Havana, revolutionary troops seek out and execute Batista's henchmen. To stop the bloodshed, Fidel sets up trials to deal with the dictator's supporters. He's criticised by some commentators in the US as the process seems unfair, but he says that revolutionary justice is based on moral convictions, not legal precepts. He wastes no time at all putting his revolutionary ideas into practice. Large farmers find their lands divided into pieces and given to peasants. Millions of dollars goes into developing Cuba's infrastructure, building roads and establishing water and sanitation projects. Fidel's government invests heavily in public health care and halves rents for the poorest people. In the cities, money is confiscated from casinos owned by mafia bosses. By the summer of 1959, six months into his rule, many middle and upper class Cubans have fled Fidel's brother Raul is Minister of Defence. Che Guevara is also in power as the Governor of the National Bank and the Minister of Finance and Minister of Industries. Our guest Tony Perite describes the beginning of Castro's rule. Well, his policies very, very on were very uh, nationalistic and very. Uh, you know, he astonished everyone, for example, by um, get rid of, getting rid of all sort of segregation, racial segregation laws. Uh, you know, just with the stroke of a pen, you know, meanwhile, you know, in the United States, the South was still under very bitter Jim Crow uh, regulations and uh, civil rights protests were just getting going. But Fidel, you know, just got rid of them and, you know, opened up these sort of country clubs that had been white only, you know, to, to everybody. He, what he wanted to do was make uh, Cuba economically uh, independent. That was his, his big idea. So he was, it was very sort of friendly to everybody and, um, you know, and, you know, wanted a good relationship with the United States. And in fact, went um, within a, a few months, he went to New York and DC as sort of on a goodwill tour. And uh, everyone greeted him, you know, New Yorkers and Americans um, greeted him with open arms. You know, he went, uh, his trip to New York in April was um, 
you know, this it was this festive sort of thing where he, him and his men turned up and they all went to the Bronx Zoo and they went to um, Central Park and they ate hot dogs and they hung out with people. He was mobbed when he got to Penn Station. Everyone loved him, carried on shoulders, you know, over to, uh, over to his hotel because he captured this sort of this extraordinary, you know, in, in a way he was anticipating the 60s. You know, it was like this sort of this, this feeling that anything was possible. As well as they were all dressed and still dressed in their their khakis and you know with their long their beards and whatever they were sort of incipient hippies in a way real fashion leaders and so uh, they really captured everyone's imaginations everyone just everyone was very keen on them and there were, then there was a couple of sour notes Eisenhower uh, wouldn't meet him President Eisenhower wouldn't meet him instead he went off on a golf trip instead Nixon met him and it was a sort of a frosty uh, meeting because they were a little worried uh, what Fidel was really going to get up to. And, uh, and when he came back, he did actually carry out the things that he said he was going to do, which kind of amazed everybody because the, the traditional thing would be for a, a revolutionary to get power and then sort of like get into a suit and tie and then go into the presidential office and then it would be business as usual. He would then, you know, then become corrupt and then everyone carry on as, as, as they always had. That was sort of the Latin American model. But he actually started to do uh, his first big thing was land reform. So to break up these giant farms that had sort of had a stranglehold on uh, on the countryside and give you know small plots of land to, to people, that really sort of shocked the outside world or shocked you know American investors in particular and the companies. And then this sort of like tit for tat started, and um, you know in 1959 into 1960, where he increasingly. You know, became took control of things like the petrol industry, of the uh, electricity and other companies that were American run. Uh, and he offered compensation, but it was somewhat unlikely that Cubans could actually, because uh, Cuba was broke, but just Batista had stolen, you know, basically everything. He had this $300 million in a Swiss bank account. And he, this story is taking like gold bars, you know, on, on his plane. Fidel inherited this, this broke country. But he was trying to do this sort of very left-wing, you know, program, and and Che took over as uh, you know basically the minister of the economy. Started to not, you know, was, there was a lot of teething problems. Things just weren't working out, and so uh, and Americans became increasingly leery, and the middle class as well started to, uh, you know, after after a year or so, become a little leery of what was going on, but. You know, like uh, Simone de Beauvoir and um, Jean-Paul Sartre turned up and everyone was travelling uh, to Havana, Every, all, the, all the great writers and uh, the beat poets and, uh, you know, George Plimpton, the, the Paris Review, and like Hemingway was there. And it was very, it was very the first year was this very sexy, uh, fun time. And it started to go a little awry as the um, Americans started to become very suspicious of Fidel and... Um, you know, even by the end of 1959, Eisenhower had secretly um, authorised uh, Fidel's elimination with the CIA. In 1960, Fidel still isn't calling himself a communist, but out of necessity, he makes a deal with the Soviet Union. He'll provide Cuban sugar, fruit and other goods in exchange for oil, fertiliser and industrial equipment and a loan of $100 million. The Cold War is raging, so Cuba's US-owned refineries, Shell and Esso, refuse to process Soviet oil. Fidel Castro's response is to nationalise the refineries. 
tensions between America and Cuba have almost reached breaking point. Our guest, Tony Perrette, discusses US-Cuba relations and the CIA-backed Bay of Pigs invasion of 1961, which was Cuba's real entry into the Cold War. Fidel wanted Cuba to be economically uh, independent, as it had never been. And unfortunately, what that meant was uh, that it had to be sort of you know, politically independent as well. It, had to, it, was, it, put it put it on a crash course with the people who owned all the, um, all the farms and the, um, the railways and the uh, electricity plants and all that, and that was the Americans. So it was, it was sort of an inevitable disaster in a way, this train wreck that was going to happen. So it became increasingly um, tense. And since it was a Cold War situation, a couple of decades earlier, Cuba wouldn't have had anywhere to go, but there's hovering in the background were the, um, were the Soviets. And they hadn't really paid that much attention to the Cuban revolution because the, the model for the Russians was that it was all going to start in the cities and, you know, it was going to be a, a different sort of thing. And then suddenly when the Cubans won, they started to pay a bit more attention. And then there was like these guys were like the, the young Bolsheviks that had taken over in 1917. And so they would come and they would like, um, they would give economic assistance. Uh, they had a sort of a, a trade show in um, uh, in Havana, and it showed off the Soviet lifestyle of uh, all these great appliances and the beautiful tractors, and uh, you know this sort of idealized Soviet life. When Che finally made a trip to to Moscow, he was a little shocked to see just how dismal um, daily life was there and how sort of oppressed uh, everyone was and these sort of old guys going around with onions in their pockets and you know <laughs> whatever and, uh, and 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 when they finally got a lot of um, the, the the Soviet economic aid a lot of the things didn't really work but at the time it seemed kind of a, a Russia did seem sort of a, a viable alternative to uh, to the capitalist model so Fidel was like increasingly, you know, the Americans were basically backing away and they wouldn't sell arms, for example, to the, to the Cuba. They wouldn't sort of, uh, they were just becoming increasingly distant and cutting them off from more and more things. And so the Russians and the Soviets are there sort of going, well, we'll give you, we'll buy your sugar and we'll buy it. No, no, we'll buy it. We'll buy it at like three times the market rate. And we'll, you know, you need some petrol. Well, we'll sell you petrol, you know, at a sort of a subsidized rate. And so Fidel uh, was increasingly, and Che were increasingly drawn to the Soviet um, world, but they didn't, you know, Fidel had not declared himself in any way a communist. He hadn't sort of, uh, in fact, he'd made speeches saying he didn't, you know, he, he, was, he was for Cuba, he was a nationalist, he was, you know, left of centre, but he wasn't in, in any way uh, drawn to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the communist camp. But the Americans became more, more and more bellicose, and the turning point was when they, um, the Americans got, decided to invade basically to you know just send a cia back cia backed force it's known as the, the invasion known as the bay of pigs so they had got a, a bunch of cuban exiles that they trained first in florida in these camps and then in guatemala and they'd supplied them with uh, uh boats and uh they were going to and they were also promising um secret air cover uh it was this sort of harebrained plan they so they you know, and the news got out, and so when they when they landed, uh, it was slightly just another disastrous invasion. You know, like a twelve hundred men landed, but it was they, they they had completely the wrong maps; they were a bit lost. And the 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 CIA had assumed uh, on the information they were given that the Cubans would all rise up against Fidel, the hated Fidel, and would welcome them with open arms. As it turned out, everyone was actually really very, still very keen 
on Fidel. It was April um, 1960 and uh, uh, 61, sorry. Uh, so they're still very keen on um, Fidel. And so the militia was all, all waiting there with Soviet arms at the stage, uh, ready to uh, surround the invaders. And uh, after about three days of fighting, the, um, they gave up. The Americans had promised this air cover, but JFK became uh, very leery of, uh, of that because it was, it was going to be fairly obvious that it was the Americans who were doing it. And he didn't want to overtly be supporting the overthrow of a, a foreign uh, government. Uh, so he backed away from the air cover. And with that air cover, they were wildly outnumbered and they really had no hope. So they, had to, they basically had to surrender. And Fidel went down there and he personally um, uh, supervised the, uh, the Cuban army in the fight, which is, again, kind of amazing. And, um, you know, there's these great photos of him, you know, on a tank and directing everything. And it was all this, this, this amazing thing. And so... Cubans again suddenly were like they managed to defeat and you know basically an American-backed invasion. Incredible, an incredible thing. And so Fidel's support wild, you know, skyrocketed. And so everybody loved Fidel. And then he made a speech after that, declaring that he was now definitely in the uh, Soviet camp and uh, that he he was and always had been a socialist. You know, which uh, Che was one of the few that was really uh, fairly committed as a as a communist. Uh, che and his brother Raul, but Che famously sent a, uh, a message through a, an intermediary to JFK thanking him for the Bay of Pigs invasion, saying that uh, before that the, the revolution had been kind of shaky, but now it was like uh, totally confirmed and totally strong. So suddenly Cuba was on this sort of um, slightly bizarre path of being a, a sort of a satellite of the Soviet Union somehow in the Caribbean which is not what anyone had planned at all. People had told uh, Fidel or even the CIA advisors, you know, back in, the, in 1958, 59, that that was going to happen. They would have thought it was like science fiction. How, you know, could, could the Russians become established in, um, in, in, in an island, a giant island, 90 miles off the coast of Miami? And yet that's what happened. So um, uh, American foreign policy um, really was slightly uh, disastrous. They, meant they couldn't probably have uh, got a worse result. After the failed invasion and attempts on Fidel's life, Cuba turns to the Soviet Union for protection from America. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev places nuclear missiles in Cuba. It's considered the most dangerous point of the Cold War. But after a tense 13-day standoff, the Soviet Union and America manage to reach a compromise. The Americans promise never to invade Cuba again and privately commit to withdrawing their missiles from Turkey and Khrushchev takes the Soviet weapons out of Cuba. Tony Perrette talks about the crisis and its aftermath in Cuba. The immediate re result um, within a year or so was that the uh, Russians you know, were really helping out with military aid and uh, the Americans at the time were building um, nuclear missile bases in Turkey. And so uh, Khrushchev, President Khrushchev, the Russian the Soviet leader, uh, decided it would be a fine idea to build nuclear bases in Cuba. And so that's what they started doing. And then, uh, you know, the, um, the Americans with their spy planes uh, began, eventually began to spot this. 
And uh, one of them was shot down, of course, and then that was sort of like a huge sensation. You can still see the remains of the um, spy plane in um, the Museum of the Revolution in Havana. But uh, when, when um, JFK found out that, um, uh, that there were going to be Cuban, uh, I mean, Soviet missile bases in Cuba, that was obviously a huge, a huge issue for the Americans. And then uh, a Soviet... Uh, naval force came over, was sent over, bringing um, nuclear warheads, and the Americans sent out a you know a naval force to stop them. And uh, so there's this huge face-off. And then uh, Cubans were like worried that it was going to be a direct um, American, you know, a marine landing in uh, Cuba to stop all this. Uh, Fidel went to there's a there's a beautiful hotel called the Nacional, which is in Havana on a headland, and they built sort of. Um, special trenches and anti-aircraft emplacements there that you can still see. You can actually go into these little underground tunnels that, you know, Fidel's uh, command post there because he was waiting for them to just, the, the, the um, you know, the, uh, the Marines to be coming straight over. So it was, it was very close to a, a nuclear confrontation. It's the closest the world has come really to um, until... God knows what's going to happen in the Ukraine, but uh, it's the closest, um, you know, uh, they've come to sort of Armageddon. And there was this incredible, you know, face-off. And then uh, in the end, um, you know, JFK and Khrushchev were able to sort of work it out uh, in doing this sort of secret deal where, um, you know, the Russians would pull out, wouldn't have their nuclear bases in Cuba and Americans would actually withdraw bases from Turkey. And so um, Cubans were sort of like, there were pawns in this game. They were like uh, um, just uh, bit players. They just happened to be in this extremely, you know, you know extremely uh, important strategic situation. But then, from then on, uh, we've got uh, in the sixties, and you know, increasingly. Uh, uh, then the the embargo has had gone in after the Bay of Pigs, so the Americans had isolated Cuba economically. But the Soviets are there, and they're sending, you know petrol and aid and uh, the education system in the 60s uh, in, you know, improves radically and Fidel sending uh, volunteers to the countryside on these literary, literary programs. So it becomes sort of this um, sort of tropical communist model, as well as with censorship and uh, the darker side of things where um, there's gay men are rounded up and put in rehabilitation camps and things. So it's kind of this slightly contradictory sort of vision, of, you know, the 60s and like uh, the poet Allen Ginsberg, gay poet from New York, goes there and he he's thrown out of the country because he criticises the, you know, the treatment of homosexuals there. And uh, anyway, all this is going on. And so it becomes, it, but it becomes in the 60s and 70s and 80s, this sort of um, model communist, you know, a socialist world where it's sort of uh, not quite as harsh as the, as the Russian system. Fidel is interested in international affairs. He allows other revolutionaries, including the Viet Cong and the Black Panthers, to train in Cuba, and he provides support to independence movements in Africa and South America. In the mid-1960s, however, he falls out with Che Guevara. Guevara has grown frustrated, both with the Soviet Union and with Cuba's state of dependence. He resigns his ministerial posts, renounces his honorary Cuban citizenship, and sets out to fight for the communist cause abroad, heading first to the Congo and later to Bolivia, where he's executed in 1967. After his death, he becomes a symbol of rebellion and sacrifice. 
Fidel continues to hold the fort in Cuba into the 1970s and 80s. Tony Perrette speaks about what life was like in Cuba for ordinary people during those decades. The, the Cubans who stay get this sort of very quite comfortable lifestyle. It's um, uh, not terribly efficient, but um, subsidised by the Soviets. So, uh, and young Cubans are you know going over to study in Moscow and uh, and going to volunteer and work in uh, in the third world. And it's sort of this. Um, in a little, little uh, artificial dream world until uh, the Soviet Union collapses, uh, basically, in 1991. And then it's like turning off a tap. Um, suddenly there's no money coming from Russia and no one's buying their sugar and there's no petrol. And uh, Fidel, you know, who'd sort of steered the course to come up with something uh, uh, to deal with this disastrous situation. The 1990s is a period of austerity for Cuba. The country's health and education systems remain intact, but there are some major food shortages and widespread malnutrition. Fidel begins to look overseas for ways to revitalize the economy, and Cuba starts to emphasize tourism, letting the outside world in again. When Fidel grows frail, and his younger brother Raul takes power in 2008, he's even more progressive. Tony Perrette talks about Cuba in the 1990s, 2000s, and to the present day. You know, he, he wanted to keep, keep the whole um, system, system intact. You know, and uh, just, you know, Cuba becoming increasingly poor, but then also opening up to tourism as a way of getting a foreign, foreign currency. So you have in the, in the 90s this slightly surreal situation, which is the first time I went, uh, where, you know, they're, they're opening up, especially to Europeans, but also, you know, they, they, would, they would welcome Americans as well, but if you could get there. But um, so to try and get foreign currency, they're trying to promote, um, you know, hotels and tours and... Uh, all that sort of thing, and then uh, and yet everyday Cubans um, struggling. So there was this sort of a double economy was starting to build up, and uh, and Cubans becoming increasingly dissatisfied with that, you know. And that and that lasts till uh, you know around Fidel himself becomes he becomes frailer, um, and he sort of uh, collapses at a rally around two thousand six. You know, he's he's in his seventies and he has these intestinal uh, problems, and he sort of goes into the background and steps down and lets his younger brother Raul run things. And Raul comes up with, you know, a kind of a radical idea for, Q for, for Cuba that is to open up the economy a little bit to the free market. He starts doing things like, uh, you know, legalising the dollar and uh, legalising certain employments. You know, there's a couple of hundred jobs that you can do and you can be paid directly in, in a sort of a free market way. So it's kind of a radical, radical thing. And it's, you know, the economy is going along. Uh, and the Americans, you know, when Obama comes in, um, they, you know, Obama starts to, has a sort of a thaw begins. And uh, uh, even though politically Cuba's not, not that open, it, there's more and more young Cubans who are making money and open to the outside world and they can travel. Musicians are, you know, getting out their artists. And so it's sort of opening up. In, in a natural sort of way. So Obama goes to visit, the Rolling Stones come to play. You know, there's this incredible sense of optimism, all of which collapses when um, to, you know, this, this 
this thought under Obama, Trump comes in and um, Trump panders very much to the, um, the Cuban exile community in Florida, uh, the last vestiges, you know, of this sort of very intense uh, sort of uh, hard line um, attitude to, uh, to Castro. And uh, he starts to close things off again. He cuts, you know, he sort of cranks up the embargo uh, in a way, you know, to really putting back the clock to the, um, to the 60s. So this sort of tragic situation occurs in Cuba where uh, all this hope and optimism had been there and suddenly everything, everything dries up and, uh, uh, and it's just gone from bad to worse, unfortunately, over, the, over recent years because, um, you know, as it became more, Cuba became more isolated by Trump, then the sort of the more conservative and reactionary elements of the government get stronger and stronger because weirdly they can, the Cubans have always been able to blame, the, you know, the, the, you know, the um, their economic problems on the embargo, the American embargo. So there's this enemy thing. It's like destroying Cuba. So you've got to like fight. You've got to, you know, like, you know, all control the country and control censorship. So the, the you know, the new president, uh, Miguel Diaz-Canal, who took over a, a few years ago, I mean, he's very much a conservative sort of character, you know, keeping the old system together. And then um, the, you know, things are, things are going pretty badly. And then the, the COVID crisis hits, the pandemic. Cuba actually cuts off all ties to the outside world to sort of isolate itself. So there's layers of isolation upon isolation. And the economy, there's no tourism money. Uh, Venezuela had been had stepped in and was giving petroleum, uh, subsidized petroleum to Cuba. That all falls to bits. So things, you know, are now worse than they were even in the 90s. You know, economically, Cubans are really suffering, and there was a lot of uh, protests. were taking over these spontaneous protests taking over in um, in in Cuba, and uh, you know, met with you know great repression by the military there. And so, really, it's this sort of the sense of uh, crisis, and you know that something's got to happen, and no, no, you know, something's got to give, and no one really knows what. Fidel passes away in 2016 at the age of 90. His funeral procession retraces the 900-kilometre freedom caravan route he had taken in January 1959. Communist leaders have often been glorified after death, but Fidel Castro did not want a cult of personality to grow around his memory. In accordance with his wishes, the government of Cuba passed a law stating that no public monuments would be named after him. Today he's remembered as the man who turned a small island nation into a major player in the Cold War and supported others' struggles for independence around the world. For more than 40 years he defied a superpower, surviving pressure from America and numerous assassination attempts by the CIA. He's also seen as an oppressive and power-hungry dictator whose policies left Cuba with serious economic problems and the reason thousands of exiles were forced to flee their homes. As Tony Perrette tells us, his legacy is complex. After all, nothing about Fidel Castro was ever straightforward. It's a very um, troubled legacy, and yet this extraordinary figure, whereas, you know, no, there's no, um, you go to Cuba, there's no streets named after Fidel, there's no... Uh, you know, statues. There's no. Uh, there's his gravestone is this giant boulder that has like Fidel written on it. You know, and it's like this sort of uh, 
you know, incredible egomaniac, but also this, this sort of, uh, you know, he had this vision for the country. You know, he, he, Cuba was Fidel. You know, he wanted to make it in a, in a certain way. So uh, that was his, his legacies. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. A very special thanks to our guest, Tony Perrottet, historian and journalist and author of Cuba Libre, Che, Fidel, and the improbable revolution that changed world history. Tony has written for many publications, including the New York Times, and he's a contributing editor at the Smithsonian Magazine. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music, and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We'll look at the Edsel motorcar. Marketed as the car of the future, its name now unfortunately synonymous with failure. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website www.nzpods.com That's nzpodz.com By giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service, you help us to share this project with more listeners. So please do share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.